Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. For our scripture reading, Luke chapter 19, we'll begin reading in verse 11. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given, money, given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away away in in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to be to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that we may come and hear from Scripture what it is that you have for us to hear. Would you speak by the power of your Holy Spirit to our hearts that we might not dismiss this time? or or tune out, or or, or become distracted, but Lord, that we might hear from you and build us up in the faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, for some, this may seem like a strange text for Palm Sunday. We normally look at the triumphal entry or or something in that regard. Uh, But if you notice the text around it, if, if you're not in an electronic Bible, if you are, you can scroll up or down. But if you're in a a regular Bible, you can just glance up and see that what comes right before this is the account of Jesus and Zacchaeus, and what comes right after this is the triumphal entry. And of course, even in the introduction to the parable itself, Luke tells us the reason for Jesus telling the parable, that it was because they were about to go, they were on their way to Jerusalem, they were about to enter in, and they didn't understand. And so Jesus gives this teaching. They're on their way on this very day that we celebrate Palm Sunday. Now, they were going for Passover, at least in part. Of course, Jesus was going for other reasons, and he had told the disciples this a number of times. They didn't seem to get it. 
As we know, they didn't understand why Jesus was, or even that Jesus was going to die. We, uh, if we peek back to Luke chapter 18, Luke tells us, and, and taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. That same kind of lostness, we get that in this passage as well, that, that they didn't grasp what Jesus was really up to. And that was in part the purpose of Jesus telling the parable, that he was going to go away and come back a second time. Uh, the kingdom wasn't going to come in consummation at this point. So Jesus is readying them for what is about to unfold. They don't get it. That he is not only going to die and be raised again, but that he was also going to go away. None of us would have voted for this plan. The disciples and his followers would not have voted for this plan, and we get it. We understand why, because we want the consummation of the kingdom. We don't just want the foretaste of the kingdom, the inauguration of the kingdom, which has happened. We want the fullness. We want all evil to be eradicated. We want sin removed from our hearts and from our lives. We want, uh, you know, peace. We want shalom, everything that the kingdom promises. And of course, this isn't a bad thing. It's just that that time hasn't yet come. God's timing is always perfect, and so we wait. I think this is especially hard, however, when we feel the acuteness of evil like we did this past week with the news of the shooting in Nashville. As many of you may know, you may not know that this is a, a sister church of ours, a, one of, part of our denomination, the PCA, Covenant Presbyterian Church, where the school was housed. And so some of us know people that worship there who are on staff there and, and are otherwise connected. And so while this act of evil would have been horrendous no matter where it happened, it feels just a little closer because of these connections. And so we, like the disciples of Jesus, long that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, and yet we wait. We want the fullness of the kingdom, not only with its beauty and power to eradicate the presence of evil, but we also, like the disciples, are called on to wait. They wanted it for different reasons. We know that. They wanted it to, to, to see the Roman occupation end. They wanted to, to see uh, Jesus uh, elevated for, the, for their own hopes and dreams to somewhat be vindicated. It is true that Jesus brought with him the kingdom. He inaugurated the kingdom in his coming. He said, the kingdom is in the midst of you when he came. We call this the now and the not yet, that his kingdom is both here and not yet. It is present. He is on the throne ruling in heaven. He is king. He is uh, working through his church, the body here on earth, but it is also not yet. That is, it is not yet fully realized, not, not yet fully consummated. In Luke 17, Jesus said, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So in this sense, we can relate to the disciples of Jesus' day who were looking for the king to reveal the kingdom in power as we wait on the king to come again. We can relate to this tension that they felt. Now, in this parable, Jesus teaches us about what we do in the meantime. 
He's instructing us on how we are to live in this period of waiting. And a parable is, is a great teaching tool. Uh, I think uh, many of us who, who look at the parables of Jesus in particular kind of marvel at, at just how ingenious they are, wish that we could be uh, the same kind of storytellers that could make such an impact. Uh, but, but parables, while they are uh, great tools, they are stories. They are parables, and they do have limits. Uh, we don't push parables beyond what they are intended to mean. For example, when we look at doctrinal teaching, such as the Sermon on the Mount, we come back to it again and again, and we see that we can squeeze it for every ounce of teaching that we can get out of it. We can come back to it and, and just squeeze it and squeeze it and squeeze it. Parables are a little different. Parables are designed to teach centrally one thing. You, you look at the parable of the prodigal son, for example, and it's this wonderful parable that teaches the lavish grace and forgiveness of the Father, but it's not designed to teach us that God in heaven has a body like an old man who pulls up his robes and runs. It's not designed to teach that. That's pushing it beyond its intended purpose or meaning. You might think of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. When we come to Proverbs, we understand that Proverbs are proverbial, and there are, they, they certainly are true but they're not true in an absolute sense in every case, in every situation. That's what, in part, makes it a proverb. And so there's a correlation, then, between parables and Old Testament literature. Sproul's helpful here. He says, parables usually have one basic central meaning. Trying to over-symbolize them can have the effect of tearing them apart. That is, trying to associate a meaning with every particular part of the parable. He says, a person doesn't understand the beauty of a flower by dissembling it. Like a blossom, a parable is best understood by seeing it in its simple and profound entirety. And so with that background then, I want us to begin to look now, keeping that in mind, at verse 11 in chapter 19. Luke connects what is being told in this parable to what has just happened with Zacchaeus as they heard these things. He proceeded to tell them a parable. So we know that, you know, the story of Zacchaeus, I'm going to come and stay at your house today. So maybe this was that evening uh, that he's, he's sitting at Zacchaeus' house teaching and, and, and telling parables. Uh, maybe it's the next morning before they departed because they moved on to Jerusalem the next day. We see the triumphal entry next. But here it is. They're, they're, they're likely at Zacchaeus' home. He's, he's teaching them, and he, he brings them to this parable. And then Luke adds the reason for the timing. He says, because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That's what they were anticipating. That's what they wanted. The expectation for the disciples and for other followers of Jesus was for the kingdom to come right now, and we get that. That's, in essence, what we want as well. We pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The Jews had waited for centuries for the Messiah to come. They were on the lookout for the promised one, the son of David who comes in the name of the Lord. And as they listened to his teaching, as they witnessed his miracles, as they heard his testimony as to who he was, there was this building anticipation, anticipation of, is he the one? Is this the Messiah? And we don't have time to go back and look at several of these accounts, but any cursory reading through the Gospels will show this, that there was this building anticipation of seeing that Jesus was the Messiah. I think we have to remember, too, that the, the, just the, the Roman occupation, this was a big deal. If you can imagine having uh, or living in a, in a country where there was an occupying force that told you how to live and what to do and whose army's present was, presence was everywhere to be seen, they longed for freedom from this world power. They didn't want that army to be in every corner of their city and the tax collectors. They didn't want their, uh, the, the, their, 
the, the Caesar appointing their kings and the governors who ruled over them. And that actually presents another part of the background that's important for us to keep in mind, and that is before the birth of Jesus, King Herod traveled to a faraway country to receive a kingdom. He went to Rome to be coronated by Caesar to become king of Judea. And after his death, Archelaus, his son, did the same thing. However, when Archelaus went, there was a group of Jews who went with him. Not, I'm sure he didn't travel with him. <laughs> they probably went in secret. But they showed up uh, at his meeting with Caesar to protest and say, we don't want this man to rule over us. Archelaus, after Herod had died, was, he already stepped into the role uh, as king, but even though he wasn't called king. And he wanted so desperately to show his power over this, these people, you know, the, the Judeans that he was to rule over. And so there were protests, and, and in an effort to quell all this, he killed a bunch of them. And so the people rightly protested. They didn't want this man to rule over us, and so they went. And Caesar didn't coronate him as king. Uh, he waited. He took kind of a wait-and-see approach. And so uh, that, was, that was how Archelaus then returned to the country. So this is a kind of a current event that would have been in the minds of the people as they heard this parable. It paints the backdrop that they can see a correlation. Now, I mentioned that parables, we can't push them too far. Uh, So this is one example. The parable isn't designed to teach us that Jesus is like Archelaus because Archelaus was not a righteous ruler. So that would have been pushing the parable beyond its intended meaning. Rather, it's setting up the framework for this idea of a time gap between the king receiving his kingdom and returning to bring it in full. Now, in verse 12, the parable begins with this nobleman going to a far country to receive a kingdom and then return. Again, it sets up this gap of time because the the followers of Jesus weren't anticipating this. They thought he was going to bring the kingdom immediately. And so the nobleman, before he leaves, he calls ten of his servants, and he entrusts them with ten minas, each of them receiving one mina. A mina is about three months' salary. So it's a considerable amount of money, not life-changing. If somebody gave you three months' salary, it could certainly allow you to do some things, but it wouldn't allow you to retire to the Keys. Uh, so it was, a, it was a notable sum, but it wasn't anything that, that was like winning the lottery. And so they each received the same amount. That's really the emphasis. It's not so much on the amount as it is on the fact that they all received the same amount. And what this represents is not spiritual gifts, but the trust of the gospel, the gospel deposit. That is what is being represented here. You might think of the parable of the talents. I think that's in Matthew. That teaches about spiritual gifts. And so a lot of times these two can be confusing. But where spiritual gifts vary based on the Holy Spirit's giving us gifts when we come to faith, we all get different gifts according to the Holy Spirit. Uh, Here, the gift is the same for each of the recipients. And so the gift represents the gospel itself. Paul used such language. For example, when he, he wrote to Timothy at the end of his first letter, he said, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard the deposit of the gospel that has been trusted, entrusted to you. So what this means then is rather than uh, stewarding gifts that have been given to us, this, fo- this parable focuses on faithfulness to which, wa- to which we've been called. That is believing the gospel, holding fast to the gospel, clinging to the gospel, proclaiming the gospel uh, in all that we do. What does this look like? Well, Before I say that, let me just say there's a business model approach that's used here. Uh, That's what Jesus is teaching. It's one that we can relate to, the idea of investing. We see that each of the 
Servants invested differently. We're not given details of how they invested differently, but that's implied that they all invested differently because they got different returns. And so that's, that's something to keep in mind, that we're going to do things differently. Uh, ways that we invest the trust of the gospel that we've each been given. Well, in many ways, it's, it's kind of the basics. It's the spiritual growth. Uh, it's, it's trusting in, in, in the Spirit's sanctifying work in our lives. It's, it is it's serving others in deeds of love and mercy. It is repenting of our sins and prayerful reliance on Christ's atoning work on our behalf. It is sharing our faith with others. It is investing financially and with our time in the work of Christ's kingdom. It's really living out our faith. Philip Ryken, in addition to similar things, as I just mentioned, he adds this thing that I think is really helpful. He says, We put the gospel to work by carrying out our regular calling in a way that shows the supremacy of Christ. The worker can do this with his labor, the professor with his scholarship, the educator with her teaching, the lawyer with his justice, the doctor with his medicine, and the artist with her craft. As long as it is done with the intention of bringing glory to God, anything and everything we do is an investment in the kingdom of God. So it doesn't matter what we've been called to. It doesn't matter what God has entrusted to us in terms of our giftedness or skill set or so forth. It is that are we doing everything to the glory of God, knowing that we are not our own, that we've been bought with a price? Are we engaging in kingdom work that is investing the gospel trust until Christ returns? That's what's being said here. Now, we could give a lot more in terms of examples and so forth. I won't do that. I will say instead what this really boils down to is intentional faith. Day in, day out, intentional faith. That is purposefully and consistently looking to and trusting Christ Jesus in every circumstance, thus being faithful to Him so that we do everything to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, do everything to the glory of God. And while that sounds impossible, it is our intent that we strive toward because we're going to miss the mark. But when we do, we repent. We repent when we become distracted. We repent when we get lured away by temptation and sin, when we uh, become burdened by anxiety and by our worries. We confess our envy, our malice, our bitterness, our strife. And in this daily, moment-by-moment walk of repentance, we return to purposefully and consistently looking to and trusting Christ. So don't hear this as impossible, but it is hard. (laughs) Every one of us recognizes how hard this is. Um, I can't, just Friday night I had conversations with friends about driving around Vera Beach we're all going to be faced with that if we get behind a wheel when we leave here, even pulling out of here, of just how maddening it is to do everything to the glory of God, including driving, buying groceries, living next to frustrating neighbors or people who you know, either use the HOA as a thumb or they don't follow the HOA rules or there is no HOA or whatever it is that we're up against. The most menial things, doing everything to the glory of God isn't a simple task. It's hard work, but be encouraged that you're not the only one in this. We all face this struggle. We're not alone, and we don't do it in our own power because we've all been given Christ's Spirit to empower us to engage in kingdom business until He returns. Not only is the work hard, let me give you one more discouraging bit of news. That is, there are enemies, enemies that don't want Christ to be king. That's what we see in verse 14. 
Because they hate him, they will hate you, and they will hate me, and they will hate all who call Jesus king. So do not think that you can cozy up to the world and be tolerated by it. There is a distinction between us as believers and the world around us. However, this does not mean that we're to be unkind to unbelievers. It does not mean that we're to go form a commune and live as ideal as that might be. I think about it all the time, how simple, simple it would make life if we could just buy a few hundred acres and have our own cattle and, 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 and fields and so forth and, and just be completely cut off from the craziness of the world. We are called to be in the world, salt in the world, light in the world, but not of the world. And this means then that we do engage with our coworkers. We do business in a world filled with unbelievers. We do live kindly with our neighbors, yet we do so being wise and gentle. You get the sense from this parable that there's this call to alertness. In fact, my hope is throughout Easter, uh, this, this entire Easter week, that that's, that's going to be what you hear, is a call to alertness. Alertness, in this case, to the task. There's an implied alertness to the fact that the king is coming back, that we see in this parable over and over. He's going to come back. He does come back. But there's also an alertness that we need to retain in regarding the enemy, that we don't tune out, that we don't unplug, that we don't just veg But as believers, we must not grow weary. And so we pray for refreshment and renewal that we remember that there is an enemy who prowls around. So alertness to the task, the kingdom work, alertness to the return of the king at any time, and alertness to the efforts of the enemy. These are what we need to keep in mind. Now in verse 15, the nobleman comes back. He's now the returning king, and he calls the servants who he's entrusted with these these gifts, this stewardship, this deposit, he wants them to give a report. And the first two do incredibly well. I think any of us in this room would, would, uh, would take a, a return like tenfold or fivefold, right? Any kind of investment, if you could, if you could take some of your money or, or an investment and get this kind of return, you would, you would take it in a heartbeat. It's a pretty good return. But note how they, they phrase the return when they speak to their master. They say, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. Lord, your mina has made five minas more. They both reflect a humility that emphasizes not their own work or effort, but the power of the gospel. When we guard the trust that each of us has been given in the gospel, it does the work. We could say that God does the work since the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So neither servants take credit for their determination, for their effort, for their ingenuity and how they invested And he says to them now, well done, good servant. And what does he give them? Not a trophy, not a certificate, not a a monetary deposit or reward rather, but he gives them greater responsibility. That's the reward. Because they have been faithful in the little, the king now knows that he can can entrust them, that they will be faithful with much greater things. And so they now become rulers over cities. The third servant, on the other hand, responds with cowardice to the task that he's been given by hiding the funds in a handkerchief, in a sense robbing the nobleman of the money by not even putting it in the bank and earning interest. He then slanders the king, saying, For I was afraid of you because you were a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And so the king turns around and says, 
that accusation that you make against me, I'm going to hold you accountable to that. I'm going to be severe, and I'm going to take what I did not sow. And he takes a back from him, although it was his in the first place, and gives it to the one with ten. Now, the observers see this and they say, unfair, he's already got ten. Why would you take it from him? To which the king explains, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So in one sense, the, the, the servant is, is right about the king's severity because we see how the parable ends in the judgment. Yet the severity toward the wicked servant and toward the enemies at the end is not severe in the sense of the king's righteousness. When we understand who the king is in this parable, we realize it's not. He's the sovereign. The, the servant robbed him of his investment by hiding it in a handkerchief. And this is what we do if we claim the name of Christ on Sundays and live like the world the rest of the week. The servant thought he would get nothing. And I, f- I fear that there are people that, that, that do this in, in, in America that, that will say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. You know, I love Jesus. But there's, there, there's no, no demonstrable faith. There's no intentional faith. There's no purposeful faith. And there's no, no distinction in their life and how they're living. They play friends with Jesus when it's convenient, but they do not want a master to whom they must submit. Like the one who's ashamed of the gospel, or the one who doesn't believe that anything good will come out of living this Christian life, this is how the servant is portrayed. So the king has the right as the sovereign then to do as he wishes, especially to the servant who lives as if the king's reign is of no significance. So much like the person who claims to be a Christian but has no true faith, no intentionally purposeful trust in Christ from moment to moment, all of this is a facade with the wicked servant. Now some read this and think that the wicked servant represents one who is just weak in the faith or immature in the faith, uh, that they, they're actually a true believer, uh, and, and that's, it's possible it's a parable. So there's some of these things that you know, we, we can't put a nail into. Uh, we do see such a person described in 1 Corinthians 3.15, which is a teaching on rewards, and it's talking about the rewards that are, are not done in faith and saying that they will be burned up. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I'll just say that because the servant is called wicked by the master, I don't think that he falls into that category. I think that he's actually uh, not a believer, and that's, that's where I land on it. In the end, the enemies, however, are brought to be judged before the king, before the sovereign when he returns. They've committed treason. They've hated the king, and so he brings judgment on them. It's the same picture that we see described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So the judgment is sure. That's one of the things the parable emphasizes. The judgment is going to happen. Jesus will return and he will judge. As we've seen throughout our study in the book of Jeremiah, the judgment of God is both a warning and a comfort. It is a warning for us against sin and against unbelief that we might fall on the mercy of our God and be saved. And so it's a warning to anyone today who has yet to believe in Christ to fall on the mercy of God and be saved. But it is also a comfort 
when we see and experience evil in this life, that there is no person, no nation who will get away with their wickedness, that we will all face the judge in the end. And if we are not clothed with the righteousness of Christ, we will bear that judgment ourselves. For all who are trusting in Christ Jesus, let me say that I don't think the intent of this parable is, is, is to cause us to doubt our salvation. But my guess is, because I think the same thing when I read this, it, it, it kind of makes you catch your breath. Like, am, am, I the, am I the bad servant? Am I the wicked servant? I mean, have I been ashamed before? Have I hidden the investment instead of putting it to work? Am I doing enough? And you know that every time those questions come up, that little legalist inside all of us likes to bring this point up. We so want to earn it. We so want to be credited for our part in it. Let me point you back to the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Christ paid it all. Now that faith alone that we have in Him, it does produce fruit. We should see fruit in our lives. But we're not looking to simply to the fruit. We're looking, we're having our eyes fixed on Christ because He's the one who did it. Yet as we look at our lives, we can ask questions. We've talked about this recently in our Sunday school class on assurance. Is there not just the fruit that we like to see, but is there even a desire to please God? Is there even a desire to be known by Him, to call Him Father? Is there, do we even care? Because even this can be evidence of true faith, small as a mustard seed as it may be. Look backward. Look at your life and see the signs of God's grace in bringing you along and the growth that He is doing in your life. Now, let me say that if you don't see evidence, if you still doubt, then come and talk to to me or one of the other elders. We want you to not only have an understanding of the gospel, but an assurance of that gospel truth in your life. So I don't want anybody wondering in doubt or or sorrow over that. But I do want to encourage you that, that, that the intent of the parable is, is not on causing us to doubt our salvation. The parable is designed actually to propel, to motivate us to be alert to, again, the task of the kingdom. Primarily, but I mentioned two other things, the fact that the king's coming back and the fact that there's an enemy around us. Those are the three things that, the, that if we could sum up as the one thing of alertness, the three areas of alertness are those three things. Now, Jesus has a lot to say about the kingdom. If you read through the parables, you see this over and over again. The kingdom's a big deal. We're going to get into this in our new study in Matthew that will start after Easter. So it's not hard for us to grasp the importance of this kingdom work that he's describing here. Yet the fact of the kingdom itself is hard for us to grasp. That it's now and it's not yet. What does that really mean? You know, uh, you hear this. Uh, if you read any, uh, uh, listen to sermons or read any theological work, you hear this all the time, the now and the not yet. It's hard to understand. We want nice, neat categories that we can fit into boxes. We don't like the gaps that are left in our theology that require faith or the gaps that are left that, that, that just involve mystery that we kind of have to leave alone and wonder at. But the fact is, is that Jesus taught both that the kingdom is here and that it is coming. It is now and it is not yet. And so we labor now with kingdom priorities in how we spend our lives. Our time, our money, our efforts, our investment in the kingdom and our reward that we will receive is not meritorious in terms of righteousness. That's found in Christ alone. 
but it is rather a gift that leads to greater responsibility. That's what we see taught here. And the, 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 the best example I can think of, and as with parables, all examples and illustrations that pastors use, they also break down. So I'll tell you that up front. But it's the, the illustration of a scholarship. If as a kid, all you ever want to do is be a doctor, uh, and you worked hard in school, and you, that's just what you dreamed of. You just wanted to be a doctor. But when it came time to go to, to, to college, there was no money. No money for college, no money for medical school. And so someone comes along and says, I'll pay. What would your reaction be to that? Obviously, you'd be thankful. You'd be grateful for that. But also, you would have a great sense of responsibility. Because it's not like winning the lottery or getting just a financial gift to go do whatever you want with. This has a specific intended purpose. Because what's in front of you is not a life of ease and comfort. What's in front of you is a ton of work. (laughs) You are now entrusted with this payment, this scholarship that's going to pay for your education to then go on and work even harder through your undergraduate studies in medical school. You would have to say no to a lot of things in life so that you could say yes to the priority of your medical training. And when you finished all of your schooling, your reward would be even greater responsibility. That of being a doctor, more work, more responsibility, more so than being a student, I think, if you ask any physician. But the joys of a dream fulfilled, the joys of helping others, all of the dreams that you had in being a doctor would also be a part of the equation. Now, as I mentioned, illustrations break down. I don't want to push that one too hard. But the point is, is that there is a reward that we see taught in Scripture for believers when the, king, when the king returns. And Jesus told this parable as the disciples and other followers were about to go into Jerusalem with him during his triumphal entry, that his kingdom would not come with an earthly army or with a temporal throne or with an overthrow of the occupying Romans, all the things that they wanted. His kingdom, one that is not of this world, but one that has invaded this world, is one in which he rules on a heavenly throne through his body on earth, the church. You and I, as believers, are a part of this kingdom. And so the call for this is to be alert to the work of the kingdom that is before us. We have tasks, intentional faith, purposeful faith, that is doing everything to the glory of God, whether you eat or whether you drink, whether you're a laborer, a scholar, or a craftsman, whatever you're doing, do it to the glory of God. Be also alert to the fact that the king's going to come at any moment. And like we see in the parable, he's going to call for an account. How do we steward what's been entrusted to us? And also be alert that there is an enemy. He's prowling around. He wishes to thwart the kingdom mission. He is not going to be successful. We know the end, so there's great comfort in that. But he is a vandal. He's going to do as much destruction as, as he can, uh, as is possible. And so we need to be aware of that. We don't need to stick our heads in the sand. Instead, we need to fix our eyes on the king so that with a joyful responsibility, we may guard the trust of the gospel, investing our very lives for the kingdom purposes that we were saved unto, with the hope that we too may hear from our king, well done, good servant. Let's pray. Father, many things can distract us, many things can lure us away from what we have been saved unto. It's so easy 
to let the cares of this world weigh us down. And, uh, and in this moment, there, there may be greater clarity on what we could do differently, but we're, we're, we're about to, to leave and we're going to become overwhelmed and distracted by all the things in life that, that we live with. And so my prayer today is that you would refine our awareness, that you would, that you would make it sharper, that you would bring to mind by your spirit within us again and again as we go through this week a greater sense of the reality of the kingdom, that we might live with kingdom priorities, that we might live differently for the sake of the gospel, that whether we're pulling weeds in our garden or whether we're talking to our neighbor about the hope within us, whether we're doing our work when we have opportunities to slack off and instead we remain diligent when no one's looking and no one will give us credit for it, but we do it as unto you or whatever it is that is before us this week, Lord, would you cause us to do everything to your glory and make us ever aware of your return that we might not veg or or tune out or slack off, that we may not become weary in doing good, but that we, we might remember that you are coming back. That would not only give us hope, but would also refine that alertness. And finally, Father, may we remain alert to the fact that there is an enemy. There are those who belong to him who hate you, and they will hate us too because of that. And so may we not think that we can cozy up to the world and not be affected by it. At the same time, Lord, may we not be unkind or hateful or spiteful or condescending or malicious against unbelievers, but may we as recipients of grace be filled with compassion that we have nothing to stand on on our own, but we are saved by grace alone so that we might have mercy on those who do not yet know you. Give us eyes of mercy toward those who we work with, who we live next to, who we shop with and and are around throughout the week, that we might live as a fragrant aroma of the gospel of Jesus all that we say and do, giving you all the glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.